Hello, everyone. Um, I'm going to be talking to overheads, but I will also explain to you everything you're seeing because it might come out a little small. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you first about uh, the circumstances under which Comedy of Errors were, was performed in Shakespeare's time. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about actors in Shakespeare's time and things we can think about when we think about performance conditions. <clears throat> now, for Comedy of Errors, we actually know a little bit about a very unique performance of that play, which happened not in a theatre at all, uh, but in an inn of court in Gray's Inn. So let me tell you a little bit about the inns of court. Um, people would go to university much, much younger than we do now. You would go to university when you were usually about 12. So by the time you finished Oxford or Cambridge, you're usually about 15, maybe the age of some of you here today. Um, and after that, you would very often, if you were going to become a lawyer, you would go to the inns of court. So events that happened in the inns of court were really very student-y, very student-like events. And one of the things that the inns of court did was this. Gray's Inn, which there is a picture of here, uh, Gray's Inn would once a year have a, a, a whole month of revelry. And in this month, they would elect a phony prince, the prince of Gray's Inn, and he would be called the Prince of Purpool because of a nearby road called Purpool. So he was the Prince of Purple, and he would have phony ambassadors, all from, all from Gray's Inn. And then in the inner temple, there would be another phony prince and another phony set of ambassadors. And they would have various rivalrous um, uh, occasions to which they would invite one another. And one of the occasions involves comedy of errors. Um, it happened in this banqueting hall. It's quite exciting for us that much of this hall still survives in which Comedy of Errors uh, were, uh, was played. So you can see there's a big long hall in which uh, students could sit. And you can see that at the end of the hall, there are a couple of doors of entrance that very easily become uh, theatrical entrance doors. Uh, here's a different picture that might just give you a different line on that. Um, once again, you can see that big, long screen that you can enter into and out of at the back. Um, and I have for you here, though it may, be, it may have reproduced a little small, but this is Walter Hodges conjecturally imagining what a production might have looked like in Gray's Inn. Um, what he's done is he's imagined a curtain running along that screen, which then gives three, three slits for actors to enter into and out of. And then, as you see, he's, he's got the audience sitting in the body of the hall. Um, well, now, how do we know about this particular production of uh, Comedy of Errors in Gray's Inn? Well, it happened during that occasion of revelry that I was telling you about. Um, what happened was there was a whole night of entertainments planned. And these entertainments were for the rival Templarians, the people from the temple. Um, they were to come over and have a marvellous time at Gray's Inn. Um, but the trouble is, sometimes uh, when there are a load of 15-year-olds together and they all get really drunk, things don't work out quite as well as everyone had hoped. <laughs> Not least because everyone won't get off the stage. They're all on the stage as well as mingling amongst the audience. So when there was something to be performed for the delight of the beholders, 
there arose such a disordered tumult and crowd upon the stage that there was no opportunity to effect that which was intended. So this is a bit of a disaster. It's all going wrong. Eventually, the people from the temple go home in disgust because there's no, there's no proper entertainment for them. In regard whereof, because now everyone was behaving very badly, in regard whereof, it was thought good not to offer anything of account, saving dancing and reveling with gentlewomen. And after such sports, yeah, reveling, yeah, after such sports, a comedy of errors was played by the players. So that night was begun and continued to the end in nothing but confusion and errors, whereupon it was ever afterwards called the night of errors. So I think we now want to think about Shakespeare. This is a young Shakespeare, young playwright, writing a play, um, either writing or adapting a play for the Inns of Court revelry. And he might well have known that it was all going to be a bit chaotic. And he might have thought, oh, my chaos of twins um, uh, uh, mistaking one another, that'll be quite good. And lots of beating up servants, that's going to be great. Um, maybe I should do something for the fact that all these people are studying law. Maybe I should put quite a lot of law in there. Um, and you will find that is a play absolutely and quite unnecessarily full of little legal references. You can understand it a bit better if you imagine an audience who might well cheer every time they hear a word like law, for instance. <laughs> I am not partial to infringe our laws. Hurrah! Therefore thou art condemned to die. Now trust me, were it not against our laws, my, my soul would sue as advocate for thee. Of course, these are people training to be advocates. I will have law in Ephesus. The reverend merchant who put unluckily into this bay against the laws and statutes of this town, who was to be beheaded pu publicly for his offense. But I think you can see that this is a play angled towards um, trying to entertain, but also trying to um, uh, control uh, a quite wayward audience. Um, well, to go back to the setting um, in Gray's Inn, We've seen a suggestion that there might have been a curtain along the back wall with three doors of entrance, uh, or rather three slits of entrance. Um, how would you herald those entrances, and why might you, uh, or um, why why might the number um, and their arrangement be important? Um, well, one thing that happened in early theatre of this time um, was that you often labelled your doors of entrance with with a word or a picture, so that that entrance could be associated with a place. And I'm going to give you a few examples here. Um, I've put this up in older writing so you can become familiar with the text. It says, this is Philip Sidney, he says, what child is there that coming to a play and seeing Thebes written in great letters upon an old door doth believe that it is Thebes? So um, he's doing down this idea. Um, this is a joke by the famous playwright, rival playwright to Shakespeare, uh, Ben Jonson. Um, he has labelled all of his three doors with exactly the same name. Mark how I will begin. The scene is Rome, Rome, and Rome. Okay, Ben Jonson joke about uh, labelling these things. Um, this is a picture. It's actually quite an early picture uh, from 1493, but it does show um, an early staging that uses these labelled entrances. 
Um, and that's going to mean something rather interesting for our play. That's going to mean that comedy of errors uh, is going to have a sort of have a very important spatial geography. It's spatial, but it's going to be labelled with a name or a picture, which themselves are now going to become very, very relevant because they're going to hang over the stage so much. So, what are they going to be? Well, here are some of them. There's the house of Antiphilus of Ephesus. My charge was but to fetch you from the mart home to your house, the phoenix, sir, to dinner. Here's a picture of the phoenix. Um, what he's going to have is almost certainly a, a picture of a phoenix. Um, a phoenix is a mythical bird. Um, it's a bird that, uh, according to legend, when it gets old, um, instead of dying, it immolates itself, it goes up in flames, and is then reborn from an egg. Um, now, because of this, because of this mythical story, phoenixes are often associated with some kind of cleansing and uh, cleansing process, whereby you become reborn. We might perhaps think that Antiphilus's marriage gets cleansed and reborn through the process of the play. Um, but the phoenix is also often associated with Christianity, because it because the phoenix arises from its death. So anyway, we're going to think of one place of entrance labelled with a phoenix. Um, and you might want to think now, we don't, we don't use characterful drawings as labels for our buildings very much anymore, as they did in this period. But in a period where, very, um, where a lot of people are illiterate, pictures were very important. And where we have a leftover of this is with our pubs, our pub signs. You have a pub called the King's Head, and you have a sign which is a picture of a the head of a king. Um, so think of a house with a phoenix sign. But that's going to mean that this phoenix, this very telling trenchant symbol, is going to be hanging over quite a lot of the play. There's the house of the courtesan. Bring it, I pray you, to the porpentine, for there's the house. And here's a porpentine. It's a porcupine. Um, so there's going to be a little prickly evil creature uh, hanging over the house of ill repute. Uh, the place where you might get yourself stuck with thorns and all sorts of other things as well. <laughs> then, towards the end of the play, as things start resolving themselves, there's the priory. Um, and you can imagine what the sign of the priory is going to be. Everything's going to, as things reach towards the re re resolution, up comes a great big Christian cross. And we might, in a way, think that the phoenix has also foretold that re resolution. So these are trenchant images, um, that, and the play will in some way be determined or shaped by these big pictorial symbols which are being given to the audience. Um, well, the play won't only have performed, of course, in Gray's Inn. It's just that we happen to know about that chaotic night. Um, we also know about one other performance of the play 10 years later on the anniversary of the Night of Errors, and that was at court. Um, but in between, it will have performed in the normal theatres. Um, now, for, th for Shakespeare, I'll just tell you very briefly a little bit about Shakespeare's normal theatres. He will have started um, putting on his plays in the first ever round theatre to be built in London, which was called The Theatre. Um, originally enough. Um, and we only have one picture of the theatre. It's not a very good one, and here it is. Um, if you look at the middle of the picture, you can see there's a flag arising out of a circular building. Uh, that's a flag coming out of the theatre. 
a flag comes out when a play is about to perform. Um, well, the theatre was called the theatre because it was supposed to be sort of classical, although actually it was wooden and thatched and thoroughly, thoroughly higgledy-piggledy in English. Um, uh, Shakespeare's company performed often in the theatre right up until 1600, when they had a great big disaster. Um, and that is that although they owned the theatre, they didn't own the field on which it was built. It was built on another man's field, and the, the man said he wouldn't rent out the field anymore. Um, and he said that hoping he would get a free theatre as a result. Well, the company were, were horrified because now they didn't have rights to the field. They'd lost their livelihood, their theatre. Um, so they went along in the night, and they took their theatre down. And they uh, transported the bits of the theatre across the Thames. Some people say they took it across in sledges because the Thames was frozen. Um, and that is possible. And then slowly over the next year, they built the theatre on the other side of the Thames. Uh, and when they rebuilt it, they called it the Globe. So the Globe is the theatre, which is why Shakespeare starts writing things like All the World's a Stage. That's a, a meta-theatrical joke about how the theatre became the globe or world. So Comedy of Errors, as we know it, has some kind of 10-year span of performance. Um, we can imagine that it performed both in the theatre and in the reconstructed theatre, the Globe. Um, those round theatres, I'll explain very quickly a little bit about their makeup. This is the only picture we have um, from the time of the inside of a round theatre. Um, this is a theatre called uh, The Swan. Um, but any of you who've been to the Globe, will have uh, the rebuilt Globe, will have a sense a bit of, about the construction of a theatre. Um, but there's only one little thing I really want to draw to your attention. And that is that you can see a couple of actors here on the stage. Um, there's a little roof above the actors, um, supported by those two pillars. And on, it, on its underside, it's got pictures of stars and signs of the zodiac. So that little roof, the actor's roof, is called the heavens. And there's an area under the actors um, under the stage, and that area is called hell. So the actors have a little metaphorical universe they act in, their own heaven and their own hell. And obviously, the stage where they perform, that's the earth. Um, so people would read the theatre most carefully and would also gesture to it a lot. Um, and we can see comedy of errors using this designation where you have heaven above and earth below are quite often... Um, uh, in lines such as this, I charge thee Satan, so that's down hell, housed within this man, to yield possession to my holy prayers, and to thy state of darkness, hie thee straight, I conjure thee by all the saints in heaven. And of course you gesture up, now you've gestured up and down, and you've also brought the audience to mind that you're dealing with these big issues of heaven and hell. This is, uh, I've talked about Christian imagery already in this play, this is a play which is very um, uh, intensely concerned with good and bad. Uh, for all that it's a, a comedy, um, uh, evil and godliness are very crucially important in this play. Which is why we get questions like, am I on earth, in heaven, or in hell? And again, this gestures, it, also moments like this are, of, are what are sometimes called meta-theatrical. Um, the theatre referring to its own structure, the theatre referring to the theatre. 
Okay, well, that's enough about theatres. I'm going to talk a little bit about actors now. Um, unfortunately, we don't actually know who any of the actors were in this particular production. But there are some things we can guess. For instance, Shakespeare keeps on and on writing parts at around this time for an intensely thin, ill-looking man. So we know there was one thin, ill actor. Okay. Uh, and he is there in Pinch. This is a description of Pinch in Comedy of Errors. Pinch, a hungry, lean-faced villain, a threadbare juggler and a fortune teller, a needy, hollow-eyed, sharp-looking wretch, a dead-looking man. This poor, ill actor, obviously. And he's also, we can see, although we don't know who he is, he's the apothecary in Romeo and Juliet, which is written shortly thereafter. Um, the apothecary... In tattered weeds with overwhelming brows, cullings of simples, meagre were his looks, sharp misery had worn him to the bones. So it's that ill actor popping up again. And every now and then we can, we can see traits that show Shakespeare writing for the same company, even, um, even if we don't know their names. There, there are also certain things we can guess about the actors for comedy of errors. People will sometimes say, how did Shakespeare have in his company two identical-looking people and then two other identical-looking people for Comedy of Errors. And of course, the answer is he didn't remotely have that. No theatre company doubles. Um, uh, that's, not a good, that, that's not very theatrically useful, particularly when you're putting on, as they were in these days, a different play every day. So if you've got a blonde, handsome guy, you're not going to get another blonde, handsome guy. You're going to get a dark, handsome guy. Um, if you've got a big fat fool, you're not going to get another big fat fool, you're going to get uh, a tiny thin fool. So I think what we can pretty clearly guess is that the identical twins in Comedy of Errors will not have looked remotely identical, particularly as it's always important for us, the audience, to know which one is which. It's important in the fiction that people can't tell, but for us it's important that we can tell. So I think actually one of the jokes will have been for intensely different looking people to be described as looking entirely alike. I think that's one extra and another form of metatheatrical joke. Uh, very briefly, I'm going to talk to you about how actors learned plays in this period. Um, in this time, and no actor would be given an entire copy of a play. That's because all the plays were in manuscript. And for one thing, you wouldn't want to have to pay someone to write out an entire play. Um, and for another thing, paper was very, very expensive, as were scribes, those people who did the writing. Um, and for a, th a third thing, there was no copyright. So if someone owned a copy of a play, they might give it to another company or give it to a printer. So you never gave any actor a full copy of the play. What you gave an actor was, was this. I don't know if you can see it, but I'll explain what it is. Um, it was called a part, which is why these days we talk about parts. It was called a part because it was part of the play, not all of the play. And what it was, was all the lines the actor was going to say preceded by a cue of the last one or two or three words that he was to listen out for. So he'd listen out for those words, then he'd say the lines, then he'd listen out for the next cue, and he'd say the lines. But if you look at this part, this surviving part from Robert Greene's Orlando Furioso, you can see there's quite a lot the actor is not given. He's given his own lines, but he's not told who will be speaking the cues. He doesn't actually know who he's talking to. 
And he doesn't know if he's talking to one people, person or several people. Um, and he also doesn't know whether he's going to speak, hear the cue and speak again, or speak, and then 12 people are going to come on stage, do a dance and kill one another before he says something again. He has no sense of timing. So it's really odd to think of actors learning all their plays with intense knowledge of everything they were going to say, but not nearly so much knowledge about what would be said to or about them. Um, not least because actors learnt those parts, those strips of text, not um, together with the other actors, but um, at home in their houses. Uh, so they, they learnt their parts really away from theatricality in some ways. Here's a description of a player who so beateth his part to himself at home that he gives it right gesture when he comes to the scaffold. The scaffold is the stage. So he learns it at home. This is another one who learns it at home, the chief actor um, who's up in his bedchamber where he was fast enough locked all night to rehearse his parts by himself. Um, well, how did actors who'd learned parts like that, how, to, how did the performance come together? Um, this little picture helps explain, but again, I'll talk you through it. Um, this is a picture which shows a performance of a play about the martyrdom of St. Apollonia. Um, so the performance is happening in the middle. And this is the moment when St. Ap Apollonia in the performance is being martyred. Uh, Apollonia was martyred by having her teeth forcibly pulled out which is why she is now the patron saint of dentists. That's true, by the way. Um, so here's the performance happening. Um, but what I'm actually interested in is here's the theatrical performance, but here's this a man with a book and a stick. He looks rather like a musical conductor. And he is something a bit like that. He's the prompter. But the prompter was a bit like a conductor. He would have the book of the whole play, the way the actors do not, and he would conduct or prompt the entrances and exits of other actors. So he was the person, just as um, a conductor brings together a violin who separately learned his part and a trombone who separately learned his part. So the prompter brings together the actors who've separately learned their bits. Um, and Shakespeare likes to make a lot of metatheatrical references to parts and cues of this kind. Here's one in Much Ado About Nothing. Speak, count, tis your cue. And that is actually the actor's cue. Um, I won't do this Midsummer Night's Dream one, but I'll show you this little one at the bottom. This is an epitaph for Richard Burbage, Shakespeare's chief actor, um, when he died. When he died, um, uh, this little poem was written for him. This is the title of the poem on Richard Burbage, a famous actor. And this is the poem. Exit Burbage. <laughs> but what is nice about that is that the long line that precedes it shows it to be not just an exit, but a cue of exit. This is his last ever theatrical cue as he goes off into oblivion. Um, well, Shakespeare uses the look of parts, sometimes very much to help direct an actor. Um, this, you don't have to read any of this, don't worry about it. Um, I just wanted to show you uh, how Olivia in Twelfth Night, for instance, might look at a strip of text and will see with her eye that she is speaking prose and then suddenly she goes into verse. You can see prose and verse, they're a different shape. And then she'll say, oh, I must do something amazing at that point. A big change of my passions or emotions must happen. Um, and uh, that is, in fact, in Twelfth Night, the moment when Olivia falls in love. Um, 
let me show you this one. This is Shakespeare at his most sophisticated use of cues and parts. And then I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, he's less good in Comedy of Errors at using them in a very sophisticated way, because he's a young playwright. Um, this is sophisticated Shakespeare um, when he writes A Merchant of Venice. Um, and he gives an actor a cue that goes like this. The actor is Solanio. He has a cue, which is have my bond. And when he hears have my bond, he's going to say, it is the most impenetrable cur that ever kept with men. A cur is a dog. So he's going to say an insult when he hears that cue. Uh, now in the text, he is talking with Shylock. And I'll just show you how it goes. So Shylock, the Jew, says, I'll have my bond. And that is, of course, the cue for the actor. So imagine, Solanio, he's heard his cue. It is the most impenetrable. I will not hear thee speak. I'll have my bond. It is the most impenetrable, and therefore speak no more. I'll not be made a soft and dull-eyed fool to shake the head, relent, and sigh, and yield to Christian intercessors. Follow not. I'll have no speaking. I will have my bond. It is the most impenetrable care that ever kept with men. So you can see that Shakespeare likes playing games with his actors, and they can also play games with one another, because obviously the actor playing Shylock will know that he gives out his cue more than once. Um, well, we do have an example. It's less good, but there's a nice example of this in, in Comedy of Errors. Um, this is where there's a cue of thy mistress, and Luciana is to say, quoth who? And if we look at the text, we'll see this is Dromio of Ephesus, and he's, he's, he starts forgetting which speakers he's representing. Tis dinner time, quoth I, my gold, quoth he. Your meat doth burn, quoth I, my gold, quoth he. Will you come home, quoth I, my gold, quoth he. Where is the thousand marks I gave thee, villain? The pig, quoth I, is burned. My gold, quoth he. My mistress, sir, quoth I. Hang up, thy mistress. I know not thy mistress. Out on thy mistress. Quoth who? Quoth my master. But if we actually look at Luciana's thy mistress, um, this is the moment where he starts forgetting saying who's, who is saying these terrible things. So, hang up thy mistress, quoth who? I know not th thy mistress. Quoth who? Out on thy mistress. Quoth who? Quoth my master. So uh, there's a little bit of this technique he's using. Um, and another thing an actor might think about when he's looking at his actor's part is he's going, to, he's going to look at his particular rhetoric. And he's going to look at what his preoccupations are, what are interesting to him, uh, what his fascinations are. I think, and he's going to look at for moments when his mood changes, because acting in this period it was sometimes called acting, it was sometimes called playing, and it was often called passionating, because the idea was that you acted in a very passionate way. And when an actor looked at his part, he looked for moments when he changed one passion for another passion. So I'll just show you this example. Uh, so let's imagine we're Antipholus of Syracuse. Um, this, the fellow is distract, and so am I. And here we wonder in illusions some blessed power deliver us from hence. And here he is, appealing to the heavens and to God. It's back to that heaven hell thing, hell thing. So he asks for God's aid at this crucial and difficult time. And now, his, this actor looking through his part is going to see that the next thing he says is, Satan avoid, I charge thee, tempt me not. Then he's going to say, it is the devil. Why, Dromeo? And then avoid then fiend. Um, 
Zawaj is Yuola, a sorceress, and he's going to see that having asked God to come to his aid, God very specifically does not do so, and what appears to come to his aid is in fact, or not his aid, but what appears to turn up is the devil. So he's going to see a change of, both a change of emotion as he hopes for God, and then feels attacked uh, by wickedness. But he's also going to see his pattern of preoccupation, his particular uh, heaven, hell interest that again gets sorted out um, in the play. So anyway, I hope this has told you a few things you can think about and look for um, when you're reading uh, Comedy of Errors. Uh, the play was written for performance of that time, though of course it's amazing to see it um, uh, brought to life again now. Thank you.